Welcome to The Bridgehead with Stephanie Gray and Jonathan Van Maren, bringing you cutting-edge news, commentary, and interviews from the front lines of the culture wars. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead on AM 530 at 1.30 p.m. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I'm the Communications Director for the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform. And as most of our listeners will know, you can find many of our past interviews uh, posted online at unmaskingchoice.ca. The Bridgehead is also on iTunes, and we post these interviews after they're aired uh, to YouTube, so you can find them there as well. Now, over the last several weeks, we've been doing a series on human rights from a variety of different perspectives and taking a look at how our culture has treated human rights and how human rights has slowly but surely become uh, degraded with the acceptance of abortion and, and other things like that. But the interview that I have for you today is, is on a very different topic. It's sort of an aberration from some of the past interviews we've been doing. And... That's because I've noticed that a very current topic here in North America right now is the decriminalization of drugs, very specifically here in Canada, the decriminalization of marijuana, which the Liberal Party of Canada has announced will be part of their platform from here on out at their latest convention. And as I've looked around and I've seen social media and the news sites sort of light up with news of this state or that state decriminalizing marijuana and people making the case for decriminalizing marijuana. I didn't see any really coherent or intellectual voices coming out in opposition to the decriminalization of marijuana. It's considered almost a passe view, but that view has been presented more or less without any evidence. So because I wanted to hear somebody speak intelligently and intellectually on, on the other side of the issue, on advocating for uh, sticking to the status quo of keeping marijuana decriminalized, I decided to contact uh, a man many of, of my listeners are familiar with, uh, the author and commentator hailing from Great Britain, uh, Peter Hitchens. I've had him on the show once before to discuss you know, generic cultural breakdown and abortion and, and the slow decline of Western civilization, but one of his most recent books is called The War We Never Fought, in which he posits uh, the so-called war on drugs never took place in, in the United Kingdom specifically, but that would also uh, apply to a certain degree here in North America. And Peter Hitchens makes the case, essentially, that the decriminalization of marijuana has a very negative effect, uh, both on people personally and for society at large. So I, I reached Peter Hitchens uh, in the United Kingdom for this conversation, and I hope that you enjoy it and are as enlightened by it as I was. All right. Uh, first, if you could just introduce uh, our listeners to your work. You recently, uh, uh, or some time back now, wrote a book called The War We Never Fought. Uh, what's the general thesis of that book, and why did you write it? Well, I wrote it because a lie is constantly told by campaigners for drug legalization, or demoralization, as they call it. This lie is that there has been a draconian war against drugs over the past 40 years. It simply isn't true. The, the book is concerned with what happened in the United Kingdom rather than in the United States, but I'm sure a parallel work could be written there. There was an awful lot of superficial fuss and fury, but the actual consumption and possession of drugs is not really interdicted by the police or the law at all. Oh, right. There's a lot of discussion, uh, you know, in, in North America, and I know there was similar discussion in the UK about the war on drugs. And it's, you know, put in all capitals as if it's this, this very significant societal factor. It's not discussion, it's propaganda. The shocking thing is that people who ought to know about him so seldom have ever challenged the phrase when it's produced. 
It, it simply is not true. No such thing is going on. If people want to possess and use particularly marijuana, nothing will happen to them at the hands of the law most of the time. Right. The result of that, it's very, very widely used. Yes, uh, certainly here in Canada as well, and, and, and you've been engaging in debate with people on this topic, and there's been a lot of sort of sound and fury surrounding your analysis of drugs. Nothing annoys people more than the truth. And you've, uh, you debated most recently, I believe, with Matthew Perry on this issue. What did you call it? A debate? Right. What sort of responses have you gotten to your arguments that you find... Oh, no, it's completely futile. I, I might as well have gone home and, and watched TV for all the good it's done. And nobody's interested. The whole of the establishment in all the Western countries is completely committed to destroying the laws against drugs. And this fiction that there is a savage prohibition is very helpful to them in dismantling what remains of the laws that we have. And so people like me who say what we do are, are, are an inconvenient nuisance. So my books are ignored and my arguments barely heard. I can't get onto the broadcast media in this country by much to say what I say, even though it's absolutely true. Those conservative political campaigns are a dead loss because the, the, the battle has been lost. What would be the foundation of your message then when it comes to... Uh... The foundation of my message is that, is that, is that Western Anglo-Sio civilization is more or less finished. It's degenerated into a self-indulgent post-Christian, post-Protestant world of personal autonomy, which for a while will run in concurrence with the reasonably civilized and prosperous society which was created by Protestant Christianity. But in the end, if you want to live by third world standards, you'll end up actually living in a third world country, and that's what's coming our way. Right. One of the discussions I was having recently with one of my friends in media concerning the debate about marijuana uh, decriminalization or legalization here in Canada is that nobody seems to be willing to discuss why so many people today find the need to self-medicate. So with a generation that's been really hurt by divorce and, and various other things. Using an expression which, which is itself packed with prejudicial statements, there's nothing medical about marijuana. It's a stupefying pleasure drug. It doesn't have any medical value in the, in, in the, in the forms in which it's sold, uh, particularly. I mean, the average user of medical marijuana in, in the United States, I believe, is a 31-year-old healthy man uh, with a history of drug and alcohol abuse. It has no medical application. Long, long, long ago, this is in my book, Keith Stroop, and people deny it, but I've traced it to the, to the source, which is an interview in an in a, in a American university magazine called The Emory Wheel. Keith Stroop, mm -hmm. one of the leading campaigners for marijuana legalization in the United States, said that the whole medical marijuana business was a red herring to get part a good name. Right. Those wonderful moments of truth that flashes out of the open, a brief, a brief illumination by lightning of what's actually going on. He said it. He was right. That's what it is. It? It, 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 there may be medical uses for tetrahydrocannabinol, the principal ingredient for marijuana. Frankly, I doubt whether they're better than other drugs which already exist and which don't have such worrying side effects. But as a medical drug, it, it couldn't conceivably be smoked or eaten in cookies or, or got through bongs or whatever it is people wish to do. It would have to be taken in measured doses under controlled conditions, which of course it isn't. Right, I guess what I was referring to earlier is why do you think so many people feel the need to check out of reality by addling their brain with, with various substances? Well, because they're stupid and lazy. And what, what other explanation do you need? And most people are given the chance. People will be stupid and lazy. And once you've abandoned any attempt 
to persuade people of the moral virtues of unselfishness and deferred gratification, then you'll get a society based upon selfishness and, uh, and immediate gratification. And as I say, this, this enormous desire, based on a misreading of John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, for personal autonomy at all costs, in the belief that if, you, if you're in charge of your own body, you do not harm anybody else. It's not true, but it's what they believe. Right. There seems to be, however, a very few people willing to speak out against decriminalization. In Ohio recently, there was the newspaper ran a column for decriminalization and left the criminalization section blank because nobody was willing to... I heard about that. They could have, uh, they could have got in touch with me. My viewers didn't try. Would you say you're one of the few people still arguing for criminalization, or are there other um, voices? But I, I do exist. I, it's, it would be possible if you, if you Googled the campaigners against marijuana decriminalization, I'm sure it would come up. And I speak English and I can write in it. They could have got me if they wanted to. It's, it's feeble, isn't it? Yeah, no, I, I would certainly agree with that. It's just that I've, uh, well, as I've been going through this with some of my friends, and, and I'm a, a quite a conservative person, and I, I agree with, with keeping these drugs illegal, I've, it's been very difficult to find anybody who's willing to make that case and make that case um, uh, strongly and coherently. Yeah, well, one of the reasons is conservative parties in, in the Anglosphere have become so corrupted. They're not conservative anymore at all. They're, they're, they're parties which are engaged in two things generally. One, the introduction of frantic economic liberalism at home. And secondly, the, the pursuit of, of liberal interventionism abroad. They are liberal parties masquerading as conservative parties. And this was the tragedy of the Thatcher-Reagan era, two liberals mistaken for conservatives by people who ought to know better. Social liberals, it's extraordinary people. They never did anything to promote social conservatism at all. Money and foreign wars, that was it. And people mistook that for conservatism, and they still do. Conservatism is, is intellectually dead in the atmosphere. Really, no one is thinking about the idea that it actually might be better to preserve good things in the past, to preserve the particular, uh, to preserve the nation-state against globalism and all those things which one would have thought would be conservative, because there is no defender for these principles. And, and I guess that leads me to, like, to the question most people are asking, and big C conservatives and especially the rising libertarian movement here in North America, when it comes to, to drug legalization, and increasingly a lot of small conservatives are asking the same question, is what, what they want to know is why should I care about marijuana? Well, you should care individually because it's very bad for you. And it being bad for you, it's also bad for the people you love. Mm-hmm. We're at the stage now with marijuana where we were with tobacco about 50 years ago. There's an awful lot of so-called anecdotal correlation between marijuana use and mental illness. Right. But nobody in any position of authority has done the immense amount of careful research that would be needed to establish for certain that one leads to the other. It will come if anybody bothers, but for the moment we have to wait. And also there's a very, very powerful marijuana lobby. I'm quite sure there are people who see great opportunities of making profit out of it. I'm equally sure there are a lot of politicians who see huge opportunities in making tax out of it. So the, the big business and the Conservative parties are, are already pre-corrupted in its favour for, for, for that reason. But it is disastrous for the individual, particularly the individual who starts encountering it when he or she is young, which is when increasingly children do. In, in Britain, it's the ages 11, 12 and 13 now, which is when it's most catastrophic for the development of the mind. Right. Has there been a sort of a judgeable cultural impact in the UK from the use of, of marijuana that you see? Uh, I mean, again, you, people think, don't they, that research is just done, that there are a number of matters which need to be researched and vast, impartial 
institutes dole out money for projects to do so. But in whose interest would it be in the modern world to mount a serious critical study of the effects of marijuana? I don't know. Yeah. Research which is politically, incon politically inconvenient doesn't get done. Right, but there's a, there seems to be a, a trend with governments, like here in North America, for example, when they need new taxes, it's often they place a higher sin tax on tobacco and alcohol. Uh, marijuana would be at least as dangerous as those drugs because marijuana cannot be used recreationally without altering your brain. So uh, to that effect, it seems like the government wants to, you know, decriminalize something and then spend an enormous amount of money encouraging people not to use it in the first place. Well, maybe, I don't know what they, I, I think a lot of people are fooled by the propaganda, the, the medical marijuana propaganda. The very phrase, soft drug, which almost everybody innocently uses, which is itself the most fantastic big lie. And of the three major drugs, heroin, cocaine, marijuana, it's, I would say it's almost certain that marijuana is the one which is most likely out of the three to leave the user with a lasting, disastrous decline in his health. You can take the others probably for a few years and come out of it with not all that much wrong with you. The marijuana could leave you in the lock ward for the rest of your life. It's, it's, there's nothing soft about it. And yet, it's universally described all the time as a soft drug. And many people in Britain don't even think it's a drug at all. And Sir Robin Murray, one of our great psychiat psychiatric professors, often asks patients whether they take drugs. And they say, oh, no, 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 take those. And they says, what about marijuana? And they say, oh, yes, all the time. That's not a drug. It's got the most tremendous public relations campaign attached to it, and it's been very successful. In your debates with people, or, or collisions, uh, as it were, on this issue, have you met any argument that you find somewhat reasonable for the decriminalization? None. They're all bad. And they're easily demolished, too. Even if there were any doubt about the matter, which in my mind there isn't, even the, 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 the worst thing you could do would be to get rid of the laws while there was still doubt mm -hmm. about whether it was dangerous. Right, so at a minimum, keep the laws in place. Establish for certain that it wasn't dangerous before you get rid of these laws, because you'll know this. If you decriminalize a drug, then it stays decriminalized. Reversing a, a, a decriminalization, making something illegal, which was legal last week, doesn't work. No. Once you've done it, it's gone forever. So it would be so rash and, uh, and, and foolish to, to rush into a decriminalization when we don't even know the answer. I don't claim to know the answer. I think the, the, the evidence and correlation is extremely persuasive. But until we knew for certain that it wasn't harmful, to the sanity of its users, then it would be absolutely unhinged to legalize it. Right. Most of your arguments are collisions with, with people like, uh, you know, Matthew Perry and Russell Brown have centered around the whole idea of... Well, the Matthew Perry thing is, it was, was, a, it was an argument about addiction, I, which is another great... Right, that's exactly what I was going to bring up. One, one counters along with the idea that marijuana is a soft drug and should be classified separately from the others. I mean, there is no such thing as addiction, and it, it's quite amazing. It, it amuses me to say from time to time, actually, there is no such thing, because, and, and because it's true, but also because of the hilarious effect of saying it in front of people who've never in their lives for one moment thought about what addiction means, have accepted this, this count for year after year after year, that people are, are actually enslaved by these drugs so much so that they cannot stop taking them. Which is demonstrably untrue, because so many do stop taking them. So what you would say is that addiction essentially is a social construct that we've used to create excuses for ourselves. Not even that. It's, it, it is, it is, um, it's a moral fiction designed to excuse people's bad habits and their failure to, to kill themselves or them. 
the other very important effect it has is on the criminal justice system. So the, the, the criminal who buys and uses the illegal drug heroin is not treated as a criminal. He is classified as a patient who's suffering and needs treatment rather than punishment. Right. But ever since we started treating heroin abusers rather than punishing them, there have been a lot more heroin abusers. Right, and in the UK, is uh, is the recreational drug use, uh, you know, quite pandemic at this point, or is it there's still a challenge? No, I don't know. It's hard to measure. I, but it, in the state in Britain now mugs the public to such an extent to, to give heroin substitutes to heroin abusers, who then sell the, the state-supplied, taxpayer-supplied drugs by heroin, which they wanted in the first place, that we do actually have reasonably reliable figures on the number of abusers of heroin known to be in, in, in this country and being helped by the government is huge and hugely greater than it was 30 years ago. Right. One of the common arguments that people often reference when they're talking about the decriminalization of marijuana is that marijuana is less dangerous than alcohol. So al- if alcohol is legal, marijuana should... Well, I, they, they, it, I don't know quite how one, would, how one could arrive at a calculus which could, which could measure such a thing. They're dangerous in different ways. Uh, one of the ways in which they're different is, of course, that alcohol being water-soluble doesn't remain in the body for very long, whereas THC being fat-soluble remains in the body for many days. It has a, a, a different effect upon you. But what of it anyway? Uh, if alcohol were, didn't exist in our society and were being introduced now, we'd ban it. Right. Uh, we've missed that opportunity. It would be impossible to ban it now. So to, to use the existence of one legal poison at large in our society as an argument for having another one is the argument of a moron. Well, how could that possibly follow? Oh, we've got one stupid, disastrous poison at large in our society. It's terrible, so let's have another one. Right. How can anybody advance this? And yet it is constantly advanced. I think it must be taught in the schools, I hear it so often. The moment's examination tells you that it is drivel. But it, people are constantly saying it as if it was some tremendous apiacue. Right. What's the response that you've gotten from young people to the discussion surrounding decriminalization of drugs? Uh, young people are not all, all the same. There are some who are, who are still wise and who've been properly educated and brought up, and many, alas, who've been abandoned to conformism and have been taught what to think and not how to think. And they differ much as adults do, but I find it much more painful when I encounter responsible adults who take, this, who, who take these drug liberalization views because, of course, the impact of their positions, particularly if they're well-known, fashionable celebrities and people like that is, 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 very, is very profound. And people take examples from that. Right, and these people are still yearning for 1968, or why do you think so many adults are pushing for this, besides money? Well, I think that drug-taking was a sort of unholy communion of the 68 generation. It was the shared, illegal experience in which they confirmed that they'd crossed over into the counterculture. It's something they identify with very strongly as part of the fabled romance of their lost youth. Right. Uh, they don't, in many cases, they now do respectable things in which it probably wouldn't be a good idea to admit to it and they wouldn't want to be exposed as having done so, but they don't, out of fear of being exposed, say very much about it. All you need to do if, you, if everybody who was at university with you knows that you were a drug abuser is to, is to make a speech saying that there should be tough drug laws and five people will pop out of the woodwork saying, hey... He was the greatest dope smoker in college in my year. Right. So there's this sort of silent blackmail. There's also the fact that most of them don't want to. Most of them still approve of it, and they allow their children to do it in many cases as well, and they keep drugs in their homes. There's no objection to it. And the fundamental argument is a moral one. Either you object to, to, to stupefying yourself and dulling the senses you're, you're given and making yourself less capable of criticizing and 
and altering the world for the better, uh, or you don't. I, I, I think that this is a, is a revolting surrender of the mind and to, to conformism and stupefaction makes people noble and, and perfect food for totalitarians. And I can't imagine why any person who values freedom would be in favor of it. But to me, it's a profound and obvious moral question. But to these people, they seem to feel that there's a, there is some sort of moral force behind the idea that you should be sovereign over your own body. Right. But your final analysis on this question, based on the reception of your book uh, and your arguments, is not a very optimistic one, I take it. Oh, no, not so. Optimism is always a, is always a foolish position to take anyway. I mean, I, I, don't, I, I, I gave up some years ago. And trying to imagine anything I would say would have any difference, would make any difference in, in, in British society. There is no longer any constituency for conservative resistance to the cultural and moral revolution. It, it doesn't. My, my only purpose in existing is to tell the truth for its own sake. Right. Because telling the truth for its own sake is a good thing in itself. Right. It's a bit like pure science. It has no practical purpose. Right. Beyond being true, of course. Ladies and gentlemen, that was the British author and commentator, author of books such as The Rage Against God, How Atheism Led Me to Faith, uh, The Broken Compass, and The Abolition of Britain, and as we were just discussing, The War We Never Fought. He also runs a blog on, on the Mail on Sunday. You can look up his writings there. I, I really would encourage you to do that, as, as they're always very fascinating. And I, I hope you enjoyed this discussion on the decriminalization of marijuana and the impact that could have here in North America. Once again, thanks so much for listening. We hope you tune in again next week. I've got another really exciting interview prepared for you, and we hope you have a great weekend.